Welcome to the Family Beacon Podcast from Minnesota Family Council with hosts Grace Evans and Moses Bratchard. Stay informed on the top stories on life, family, and religious freedom. Get the facts, stand for truth. Hello and welcome back to the Family Beacon Podcast. I'm Grace Evans and I'm here with my co-host Moses Bratchard. Today, if you're watching on YouTube, and yes, we actually do uh, have this go live on YouTube every single week. So if you want to see our beautiful faces, let me tell you, this this hair takes a long time to curl. Just teasing, it's short. But still, if you want to see our beautiful faces, you um, can go to our YouTube, Minnesota Family Council, subscribe, and see us uh, talk through things every single week. That way you can tell how much we're looking at our notes, right, guys? Yeah. Also, <laughs> if you were watching, you would notice that Moses is um, wearing a new blazer, you guys. I'm all dolled up This today. is a pivotal moment in the Family Week in history because I think every single episode... Since except we, one. Ev- oh, really? Except one. Mm-hmm. Moses has worn a gray blazer. And I, of course, have changed my outfit because it's hard being a girl. This is a patriarchy. Using <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure that people judge women when they wear an outfit over and over I again. I think they and do. And they just don't judge men. I men th- have I a uniform. They, I don't think they notice as much. Yeah. Also, it's the majority of people that watch our show, our podcast, is guys that are around my age. And so I think that they probably aren't like, oh, what's this guy wearing for his suit? Mm-hmm. And also, I think it goes with a lot. But anyways, he's wearing a floral tie, you guys, and a nice blazer that's <laughs> navy blue. So you're really missing out if you're not watching this. Yeah, definitely <laughs> go to YouTube and check that out. I have to say the reason I'm doing that is because I will be heading straight from work to the Minnesota Leadership Forum, our first ever debate that we're holding for the conservative so candidates for governor in Minnesota, the leading conservative candidates. So we're so excited about that. I will also be there. Uh, and Grace yep. will be there. And by the time you guys see this, the recording of that will be available. So hope you check that out. I think it's going to be an amazing event. Yeah, we'll have it linked in the uh, description box. But yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, again, make sure you subscribe, click that notification bell so that you get notified every single time we post. Follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council. We'll have that tagged on the screen for you. Um, to watch exclusive clips and make sure if you're on Apple Podcasts, you give us that five-star review if you really like this podcast. All right, with that being said, we're going to be talking about a lot today. We're going to be talking about how critical race theory is infiltrating Minnesota schools. Mm. We're also going to be talking about uh, Kamala Harris's comment on abortion. She said that women are going to die if we make abortion illegal. And we'll be talking about Kamala's lack of support, as well as a mother that wins with a daughter uh, who was uh, getting swept into the gender identity movement. So we're talking about a lot. great story. Yeah, a great story. Moses, why don't you just go ahead and uh, start with what's going on in Minnesota with critical race theory? I heard about this from one of my classmates, Mm -hmm. and uh, I knew I had to send you the link to it. I mean, we knew that this was happening, but there was a recent article uh, kind of outlining what's going on. Yeah, so uh, I have to say props to our friends and allies at the Center for the American Experiment, mm-hmm. which is a Minnesota-based uh, think tank, and they focus on a lot of uh, conservative issues, uh, for example, uh, crime prevention and education just being two that they focus on. And I've worked closely with them on this issue, uh, uh, on the, the social studies standards for the state of Minnesota, and, um, and they've been doing amazing yeoman's work getting us out to... Uh, to people across the state. So the, um, the, the draft social studies standards, I mean, it sounds like a snooze fest, <laughs> but it's actually, um, unfortunately, it's, a, it's another culture war, uh, another, culture, another venue for the culture war for the, the progressive yeah. uh, component of our society. So the Minnesota Department of Education, uh, every 10 years, they review and revise the uh, social studies standards, which 
are the standards to which K-12 academic curriculum is held in public schools in the state of Minnesota. So it's this boring statutory process, and it goes through all these revisions. And when the first uh, when the first draft came out, it was like really bad. It um, mm-hmm. they took out terrible. Uh, you know, I think they took out the studies of the Holocaust or something like that. It was just like yeah, it was revisionist history. They it, were rewriting well, it, history. It was and remains revisionist mm-hmm. history. Um, unfortunately, yeah. uh, I think I, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna find out if this is 100 percent true, but I believe they added the Holocaust back in. But what they what they didn't do is they didn't change the basic framework um, uh, on which this was based. And the basic framework is is moving from a standard in which uh, history slash social studies. And I'm, I feel really um, steamed about this because I am a uh, I just finished my dissertation for my history um, math yes, my master's Moses. in history. Wait, let's Ooh. just take a moment of silence for that. That's just amazing. I don't want silence. I want applause. <laughs> okay, well, it, you Jack, can... insert applause into the into the clip. Thank okay, well, add some applause. Also, if you're watching wherever you're watching, go do the clapping emoji. Yes, yeah. Thank yeah. you. I would love. I, I would love. I I, I need um, to read it. I, I will send it to you, okay. Grace. It's it's I, I really enjoyed writing it. I think it, I I hope it'll get a good grade. Um, I think I'm I'm. It's possible that I'll graduate with honors. Wow. So we'll see. Sometimes I forget that you're also a student, even though you're quite a bit older than me. That That's you know, true. gray hair. Yes. He also struggles through paper writing. I didn't have as much gray hair before <laughs> I started gra- graduate school. <laughs> oh, I thought you didn't have as much gray hair before we started doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. No, back to the topic at hand. So. So, um, because I'm into history, this really steams me up. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the fact about the past is that there are real. This is a debate within among historians: is the past knowable to any extent? Are mm-hmm. there real, true facts that uh, that actually happened? And you'll you'll even find some radical uh, historians who basically say. We can't actually know that the Holocaust took place. I, I know. I know. I know. It's ridiculous. I know that's ridiculous. They're not Holocaust deniers. They're just saying mm-hmm. we, we can only have facts about the Holocaust. Right. We can't even construct this true narrative about it. Okay. So and I'm getting off on that a little. that long ago. But something yeah. else, too, the proponents of critical race theory will argue, which we have another episode on critical race theory. This will not be the last time we talk about it. Um, Hannah Jones, I think that's her name, is she wrote the 1619 Project, which is a curriculum widely distributed in the U.S., to students, uh, and it argues, that, and as do most critical race theorists, that the most significant thing about uh, America was slavery, mm. that we were founded on slavery, that uh, American history should be read starting at 1619 when the first slave ship arrived in Jamestown, and that we're not unique for our abolition of slavery, but rather the fact that slavery existed. They actually even argue that the Civil War, that, not the Civil War, sorry, they argue that the War for Independence was fought to preserve slavery. and not for for fighting for freedom and so it is very very dicey my one of my professors went on a whole rant for a whole lecture about this wow really was that hansen yeah brian hansen oh man he's amazing i'd love to have him on the podcast because that's something we need to talk about i i would love a great book uh just absolutely refuting the entire Mm -hmm. 1619 project Mm -hmm. so we'll talk about that in a future episode but let's talk about this these uh these standards so 
um, the, the way how the, the social studies standards connect to critical race theory is through this idea of ethnic studies. Now, I have absolutely no problem with kids in Minnesota schools having to learn about the history of slavery, the history of Jim Crow, the history of the Civil Rights Movement. I learned about those things when in I fact, was a they kid. they should learn about that's, those that's, things. That's absolutely part of our history. It absolutely should be. So, but, but ethnic studies is different. Uh, so I want to read from some of the standards here. So standard 23 is about identity. Analyze the ways power and language construct the social identities of race, religion, geography, ethnicity, and gender. Apply these understandings to one's own social identities and other groups living in Minnesota, centering those whose stories and histories have been marginalized, erased, or ignored. Mm -hmm. So, as Grace was saying, with the 1619 Project, the the primary story is not about uh, how our founding fathers created and maintained an ordered a system of ordered liberty that preserved the rights of both the majority and the minority uh, within the English natural uh, common law tradition. And slavery was an aberration of that, which was eventually corrected through a horrible, bloody civil war. So it's not like our history is perfect. But Grace, yeah. uh, as, as Grace said, the 1619 Project is about saying, is centering, that, that's the phrase, mm-hmm. centering, uh, centering uh, slavery. Slavery is the predominant, the, pr- the most important fact about American history. So by the same token here, as we look at the study of history in Minnesota, the most important fact is not uh, the, the, the explorers coming here, uh, settling, making Minneapolis and St. Paul great cities, the discovery of iron ore on the, on the range, uh, the incredible agricultural wealth of of the, the state and, and, and the, the, the stories of the, yeah. of the immigrants uh, from, not, like my own ancestors who came here from Norway, but rather the story is about people who have been marginalized, erased, and ignored. And I assume that in this context that would mean Native Americans, but I have to say I, I would imagine and hope that, the, that their stories are already being told. So mm-hmm. this idea that we need to literally... Like, you, you, what, what I think is so damaging about this is you're essentially, uh, you're putting these two stories in opposition to each other. Like, you, as if you can't tell the story mm-hmm. of, uh, of the s- settlement of Minnesota and how Minnesota became a great, a great state and, and a state that fought very hard against slavery, by the way, in the Civil War, um, without erasing or ignoring the Dakota and Lakota and Ojibwe people who lived here. So like, but you actually can tell the, both those stories and, and should tell both those stories. So I, I think like it, it, it is a power move. It's saying we're, we're decentering the story, the, the common narrative of settlement and growth and recentering the, 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 the history of the marginalized and oppressed. But that actually, that actually mm-hmm. doesn't come without a cost. We should be talking about people who are marginalized and oppressed, but we should not be silencing the stories of, you know, the, the, the majority of right. Minnesotans who are, who are descended from either a white, uh, white settlers or um, uh, black, uh, black, uh, black Americans who came here from the southern United States. Yeah. Uh, to find jobs and so forth. So I just want to, I could go on about this, but I want to give some ap- some really particular examples about uh, what this means. So kindergartners will have to, quote, retell a story about an unfair experience that convey- conveys a power imbalance. So we're teaching kindergartners about about power, uh, power dynamics and the idea of racial power and economic power. And I just think that's, well, first of all, just a fundamentally Marxist 
thing. I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it that it that's what it is. It's Marxist. Yeah. I mean, and it's undeniably. teaching kids to have a certain worldview too. Yeah. Because a worldview is like a lens through which you see the world, and so these kids are going to be taught to see the world through systems of the oppressed versus the oppressor, rather than seeing it as it truly is. And I'm not saying that oppression doesn't exist in the world because it definitely does, and we need to call it out. Uh, but it isn't correct to to assert that um, that's the entire way that we should view humanity and also that um, oppression in the way that they use it is as prevalent as they think it is because it's really not. And even something that they'll claim proponents of critical race theory Moses is that we need to deconstruct America entirely because right. of its racist founding slash racist roots, yep. which is interesting because we had amazing founding ideals life liberty the pursuit of happiness equality obviously mm-hmm. we're we were failing to live up to those standards it's a blot on our history um, a dark spot on our history but we eventually did uphold our our virtues and those values and i mean still we're not fully upholding them with the sanctity of the pre-born yes and so we are failing in that way because we're not giving them life but our ideals the ideals that we were founded on were good even though we weren't fully living by them at our founding that's right. And, you know, that's that's just the case with any human society. Like, mm-hmm. humans, are, human societies are built by sinful people, often with not the best motives. And, and the American founders had great motives, you know, honestly. And they were trying to preserve slavery. They were trying to preserve the rights of the individual because that was what they believed. That was informed for some of them by the Christian faith. For some of them, it was informed by a sort of enlightenment rationalism. But the, the, the upshot of it was that that we ha- we have the the greatest system of government that the world has ever known and almost every country in the world now claims to or is something like an american style democracy it's pretty cool mm-hmm. to see even the it. united kingdom ha- becomes more like an american democracy over time although of course it still has a queen because absolute monarchy is not a good thing absolute monarchy <laughs> yeah no, no. i am just i just am still in my finals mode because i had this oral exam with that history professor i was telling you about mm-hmm. And that was like one of the questions, like explain the rise of and fall of absolute monarchy. Mm. And then another one was talk about revisionist history and why it's wrong. It was it was a very fun final, honestly. That, sound, that does sound. I was fun. kind of geeking out. Anyways, yeah. continue. Okay. Yeah. So let yeah. me so let me give you a couple mm-hmm. other examples. So, high school students will be required to quote examine the construction of racialized hierarchies based on colorism, and dominant European beauty standards and values. Unquote. So the idea there is that um, our society constructs a uh, a skin color um, hierarchy. That's I think what they what they mean by colorism, and so light skinned people, even even who are non non white light skinned people, are better, more beautiful, and so forth. And I just I just think, first of all, I I call it into question whether that's actually taking place today. And second of all, I question whether that's something that Minnesota high school students, Minnesota high school students have a limited time in which they need to know the things that will prepare them to succeed in college, succeed in life. Um, and is this one of those things? I would question that. And then we also have a couple things that are absolutely, um, uh, they're absolutely completely silent on, so, so for example, uh, the draft standards are silent on America's role in World War II. Mm-hmm. Students learned nothing about President Roosevelt, uh, Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. uh, Stalin, D-Day, uh, September 11th. Um, 
Yeah. Erasing that much of our history. Uh, George Washington, Paul wow. Revere, Bunker Hill, Lexington, and Concord are never mentioned. Instead, students analyze dominant and non-dominant narratives, quote, examine black, indigenous, or women's perspectives, quote, identify and evaluate how governmental and non-governmental institutions have responded to foreign and domestic terrorism in the United States, including xenophobia and Islamophobia. So my question would be, this is like the ethnic studies standard, right? Mm -hmm. If they're getting all this ethnic training, are they still getting actual history in their history classes? Or does this kind of take the place of history. It, it definitely it definitely takes the place of history. Okay, so, so, there's, fourth so there's graders, no history class. It's just ethnic studies. Is that... Well, it, it depends obviously. on the school. I, I think the schools do have a certain amount of latitude as to how mm -hmm. they implement these standards. Okay. But in terms of, like, standardized testing and how the, how, the school, how the schools themselves are graded by the Minnesota Department of Education, all of these things are... And this just continues. Ancient Egypt, the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, the French Revolution, Napoleon, the Russian Revolution are not mentioned. <laughs> Yikes. Um, the, students learn nothing about World War II. Um, uh, the Holocaust gets super, superficial treatment. The draft does, does not mention the Soviet Union, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, Pol Pot in Cambodia, North Korea... Uh, there's a tone of outrage uh, towards U.S. quote imperialism and quote uh, oppression. So in fourth grade, you're supposed to be able to identify what native land your school was built on. Hmm. I think we talked a couple weeks ago about a friend of mine who's a, a teacher at a uh, charter school in the Western Metro, and it's a charter school. So you would, and it's also it's a classical charter school. So you'd expect there to be a certain amount of um, a certain amount of, I guess, conservatism just baked into the curriculum because you're studying the classics. However, uh, I think I stop me if I said this before, but there were these all these second graders, and they were going to be separated uh, based on uh, sex. For some, uh, the boys were going to do one thing, the girls were going to do another thing as part of like a, a pageant or whatever. And there's one second grader who identifies as a they, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like. That, of course, is something that the second grader would have had no idea right. if they weren't taught Well, it's it. indoctrination, honestly. It's indoctrination. Kids, and, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, let me bring this in for a yeah. because uh, we could go on. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the point here is that education is so, so important. And this is, this is just scraping the surface mm -hmm. of the, thing, uh, the problems with this curriculum. Um, it's a great moment to remind uh, our listeners that you should not put your kids in public school in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. There, the 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 schools want to teach your children lies about our past. I mean, and I'm putting that as nicely as I can. They do they do obviously think they're doing the right thing, but they want to take children out of the authority out from the authority of their parents and expose them to things like um, uh, like these uh, strange curriculum ideas or like uh, explicit comprehensive sex education because they think they know better. They think they know better than parents. And we need to continue mm -hmm. fighting about this. I want to say thank you so much again to uh, Kathy Kirsten, my friend and the senior fellow at the Center for the American Experiment, who brought this to light. Uh, and, and we're so grateful that they're continuing that fight. And we just need Minnesotans to be aware that this is what's going on in our schools. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving from Minnesota to the national level, um, we've had a lot of people comment about uh, abortion in the last few weeks because mm -hmm. of the Dobbs and Jackson case. Vice President Kamala Harris 
uh, said a couple things that were a little bit uh, suspect. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? They're just not true. They're not based in okay, fact. Yeah. So uh, Vice President Harris recently uh, was interviewed, and she said that she's very concerned about the Dobbs v. Jackson case. She said, quote, this is uh, Life News reporting. She said, quote, I don't mean to sound alarmist. I mean this. Women will die. Of course, she's saying that if, Do- if Roe v. Wade is overturned, women will die. She also said... In particular, quote, women who don't have economic resources and can't then travel to places or somehow have access to safe reproductive health care, including abortion, women will die. It's not an extreme statement. In fact, it's a fact. So I have a lot to say. Sometimes I feel like I rant about the same things on the podcast about the pro-life message, but honestly, it never gets old and it needs to be said again and again in response to arguments such as these, because we face these on a daily basis. I think I've debunked this multiple times. Let's start. There's two different things she's kind of playing off here. I mean, obviously, she's lying. This isn't true. But the first thing she's referencing is, what if a mother's life is at risk? Women might die because they might need an abortion, right? Mm -hmm. And the truth is, first, we need to start with defining what abortion is. Abortion is the direct and intentional taking and murdering of a child's life. That Mm -hmm. is what abortion is. Um, when a mother's life is at risk due to a pregnancy, which is very rare, but it does happen, such as with an ectopic pregnancy, in this sort of situation, the egg is not uh, not implanted in the uterus where it's supposed to be, rather it's, it's uh, out in the fallopian tube. So uh, in this situation, oftentimes the mother's life or the child's life or both is at risk if the pregnancy continues and is carried to full term. In this sort of situation, most often... Uh, medical health professionals are going to do a preterm delivery in which they can, they're can they trying to save both the mother and the child. When they do this, they are not going in with forceps and crushing the skull of the child. They are not injecting the child with uh, a, a, de- a lethal injection. Rather, they are uh, doing a preterm delivery and they will uh, use as much as they can every medical advancement to try to save the life of the precious child. They are not going to kill the child when it comes out or attempt to kill it before it comes out. In fact, they're going to make the child as comfortable as possible and oftentimes children do survive because the age of viability is being pushed uh, further and further back earlier and earlier. And so uh, that is not an abortion because it is a preterm delivery and it is not directly and intentionally killing a child. Similarly, uh, people will argue, what if a woman has to go through chemo and she has cancer? And uh, again, a, cancer, a chemo therapy is not the same thing as an abortion because it would not be directly and intentionally killing a child. Right. And so uh, she's, she's arguing with, from that standpoint, like sometimes women need abortion. Well, n- over 90% of uh, medical professionals in the United States agree that a- abortion is never medically necessary. Mm-hmm. In fact, starting in second trimester, it's always better to deliver the child because there's such a high chance of life outside the womb. Right. The second thing, however, she's referring to here, Moses, is well, what about back alley abortions? This is the argument we hear all the time. Like if Planned Parenthood or other healthcare providers don't provide abortions to women, women are still going to get them Mm -hmm. and they are going to die. Well, uh, that is shoddy data, according Mm -hmm. to the Washington Post, which is obviously a more leftist uh, reporting group entity. It's it's fact checker did not find research that could back up these claims that whoopsie women... <laughs> say what whoopsie yeah that could not it couldn't back up the claims that women would die in um, such great numbers obviously women will still attempt to undergo abortions and they shouldn't because it's not safe for them 
but this is what pro-life activists have been saying for years, right? Mm-hmm. Few women died from abortions in the decade prior to Roe, actually, and a rise in antibiotics and medical technology has actually been the f- biggest factor in the drop in maternal deaths, right. not legalized abortions. Right. Uh, furthermore, even if it was true, let's say it's true that every single woman that that would get an abortion if it's legal is going to go get one if it's illegal and they're going to die from it or have serious complications, that would not be an argument for abortion. Obviously, we care for women. I um, am extremely pro-woman, and I want to give them health care. Um, we actually do provide health care for women. The pro-life movement provides free ultrasounds, prenatal care, etc. However, that's not a good argument. It's like saying, well, if we make a murder illegal, people are still going to murder people. Right. Well, we still need to have an objective moral standard. God, government is supposed to be an instrument for our good, instituted by God, to protect against evil, such as abortion, and to promote good. And right now, our country is failing to live up to those values. So ultimately, this falls short. Today, even, women still die every single year from legal botched abortions. Yes, they do. But Planned Parenthood never talks about these, right? It even lobbies against legislation to make abortions safer, including annual inspections for abortion clinics, hospital admitting privileges, uh, and other things. They want to be able to kill babies up until 40 weeks. Mm -hmm. They want you to never know about it. And they want it to be paid for by your tax dollars. Yes, they want the money. And that's that's my closing point on this. Planned Parenthood does not care about women. Don't be bought into this narrative. Vice President Harris does not care about women who are in crisis pregnancies. Planned Parenthood cares about the money, which is why they refuse to enact more safe standards for women. Of course, abortion is never safe. Yeah. But they, they don't they don't actually care about women. This is a red herring argument, meaning they're trying to bring up something that makes us feel empathetic towards women. But in reality, they don't care. And this is an absolutely untrue statement. And it is, it is devastating. Thanks, Moses. It is devastating that our vice president is promoting this absolute lie. So relating to that, uh, uh, Kamala Harris is our vice president. Mm-hmm. But um, there's been some speculation Hmm. that uh, she might not uh, continue to be our vice president. Uh, this is hmm. this is this crazy rumor that's been kind of floating around Capitol Hill. So I want to spill the tea on this a little bit just to get, because it's so interesting to just get a little bit under the hood and see what's actually going on, how the sausage gets made as it were in uh, in in DC. And so unfortunately, uh, well, depending on your point of view, unfortunately, um, Vice President Kamala Harris has uh, a really weak approval rating. Um, so a, a USA Today poll last month uh, found her approval rating at uh, 28%, a disapproval so at 51%. Um, and a conservative poll uh, last week uh, found her at 38, 39% favorable, 57% unfavorable. So higher favorable, but also a higher unfavorable rating. So that's just not good. Her, her numbers are consistently worse, lower than, than President Biden's, who is also struggling in the polls. So um, some of you will have heard that uh, Kamala Harris has lost three to four senior staffers just in the course of a month. That's never a good sign. When, when you see staff leaving a political leader, what that means is that they're, they sense a sinking ship. Like you guys have heard of maybe um, how rats can sense that an earthquake is coming. Mm-hmm. So if they sense that an earthquake is coming, they will leave a building. They will. You can see videos of this, like rats flooding out of a building. <laughs> and I'm comparing political staffers to that, but but oh boy, <laughs> yeah. But but there's there's a sense. So so the bitterness, um, the bitterness 
uh, Kamala Harris believes that she's given a she's been given a um, a really difficult. She's supposed to be dealing with immigration. Obviously, that's an incredibly difficult issue. She hasn't exactly uh, succeeded uh, in that, and people are saying that that's Vice President Biden or President Biden specifically sidelining her in favor of Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, who is much more popular with um, with Democrats as a whole. And he has this, uh, he has this, he's the Secretary of Transportation, and uh, which is not usually a very glamorous role. But with the Biden administration's emphasis on infrastructure, he will have a very important role to play in the next few years. They want to spend so many billions and billions of dollars on new bridges and such like, which I'm not opposed to. But uh, there's the other than also these green energy, green energy things, and it's just nuts. But the point is that this was the specific rumor. And so Kamala Harris, before her, before her election as vice president, she was the um, senator from California. And before that, she was the attorney general of California. Mm-hmm. And she was actually a really tough prosecutor when she was in California, mm-hmm. which she conveniently has forgotten about. Like, she was very tough on crime. And, and that image has really, she's tried to really move away from that. Um, she, she put people behind bars for, uh, for minor marijuana offenses. And then she herself had more or less admitted to smoking marijuana. So just crazy stuff. But uh, the, the, the rumor is that uh, President Biden would appoint her to the Supreme Court. Yes. Because she is <laughs> an attorney, and so in theory qualified, uh, so that he would qualified. not have to, this is if he runs again, or maybe even if he doesn't, <laughs> but because, if, because he, to open up the playing field for someone like Pete Buttigieg in 2024 or 2028, who might oh. be uh, more popular? That's if Biden runs again in twenty twenty four and wins. Then won't he be eighty six? Then I think he will be. Uh, president Biden, already the oldest president ever elected, would be would 86. be quite elderly yeah. um, by the end of his term. Wow. So, but he is at this point. They're still talking about him running again because mm-hmm. he's uh, sitting as the sitting president. He's he's not. He, no Democrat is going to be able to do better than him. When you have a sitting president who doesn't run for re-election, uh, such as you had in um, 1968 yeah. with uh, with Johnson, that just did not go well, and Nixon won in a landslide. Okay, so I'm, I want to bring this in for a landing um, uh, because uh, the 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 way in which the, our our current administration is functioning or ceasing to function is really important because you might not get that in the mainstream mm-hmm. media, uh, this, this, this news that there's friction between Kamala Harris, President Biden, and uh, Pete Buttigieg. Those are the th- some people identified them as the three most important people in the administration, and they're, they're kind of having a little bit of a, of a cat fight right now. Hmm. And that has implications on the country. These are three of the most popular people, excuse me, not popular, powerful people in our country. So I, I wanted to bring that to you because it underscores what Grace has been saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kamala being increasingly, I feel, isolated on Capitol Hill. She's lashing out. She's pushing left on issues like abortion. She's saying things that aren't true. Um, and I think that's, va- uh, that's, that's good for us to know. We need to be watching the political yeah. scenes so that we just know what's going on, getting the facts, standing for truth, speaking of the truth. What an amazing story this week from yeah. uh, a mom who is fighting so hard to, to save her daughter from uh, gender transition. Yeah. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, this article is called What I've Learned Rescuing My Daughter from Her Transgender Fantasy. We'll have it on the screen right now. We'll also have it linked in the description. It's by Charlie Jacobs. An amazing read. Every single one of you should read it. I think you could probably read it in 10 minutes, maybe even less, depending how fast of a reader you are. But it, it it is just a wonderful testimony to the impact that parents can have on their children and how you can your life can be completely turned around if you take the right steps. And it also plays into kind of what Abigail Schreier says in her book, Irreversible Damage. So this mom writes this article. She says it's not a cautionary tale. It's a warning. She says that she talks about her daughter. Um, she was very feminine ever since she was born. She wore all pink. Her room was pink. She insisted that it was pink. She refused to wear anything but dresses until third grade. She avoided boys' toys. She chose tea sets, etc. So very girly. She loved makeup and heels. That abruptly changed when she turned 12. And as her body began to change, change she became a bit insecure, um, as most girls go through this, this stage. And originally the mom wasn't worried because she knew that it was a normal thing with girls. But then she started, her daughter started getting into anime, cosplaying, and she, her mom still supported that because it was a part of her creativity coming through. But her mom wasn't aware that anime can actually easy, easily overwhelm young girls and that there are some very specific ties to gender-bending themes in anime. Don't let your kids watch anime, okay? Let, just just don't do that. It is not a healthy environment. Watch, Let them watch the Miyazaki movies and Avatar The Last Airbender and nothing more. <laughs> I'm or not even those. Complete. The Airbender is so boring. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll get hate for Airbender that. Airbender is one of the best shows ever Ugh, made. So bad. But other than that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Grace, but other than that, really, the the amount of, like, there's something wrong with it as a genre, but it absolutely is a vector for so much mm-hmm. nasty, nasty, nasty stuff that kids then get exposed to. Yeah. Just don't, don't let it in your house. Yep. It's like TikTok. Don't let it in your house. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so anyways, at that same time, this daughter was going through Teen Talk, which is a Canada-based program that talks about, it provides youth with accurate, non-judgmental information on sexuality, reproductive health, et cetera, et cetera, body image, diversity, all the trigger words, right? So she went through that with her friends. And when she came back from that training, she and all her friends suddenly used all these words they identified as pansexual, polyamorous, lesbian, no one was just straight or basic or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Moses and I have talked about this before, the pressure of peer groups and uh, gender dysphoria affecting peer groups. If if it's popular among your friends, you are more likely to identify as one of these labels. Right. And so then that's when the mom began to be worried because her daughter distanced herself from her old friends. She spent much of her time on online. She Oof. turned her bedroom into basically a dark cave and redecorated it with skulls. She pierced her nose with a bull ring. She made a gross TikTok videos, had vulgar language. She basically became a goth vampire-like creature, the mom says. And she was being, she, um, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of the story. That's okay, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, and then when, when the mom... Um, when the mom found her social media accounts, it just got worse, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, so basically the summer before the ninth grade, she announced that she was transgender, this girl did, mm. and she began to threaten suicide because her mom wasn't going to use her personal pro- – or I think she did use her personal pronouns and then realized that was wrong, but she wouldn't support her actually transitioning. Yes. So eventually the mom managed to get passwords to her social media accounts, and before she had been trying to track her daughter's – her daughter's uh, information, but she didn't know that her daughter had made fake accounts to throw her off her scent, which a lot of children do, so be aware of that. 
Uh, she eventually got into her actual accounts, and what she saw, she says, was jaw-dropping. She, I'm not going to go into all the details because this is a family podcast, but there is some disgusting, disgusting stuff. Very uh, illegal stuff. Um, she had a Discord server, which should tell you enough, which, which with disgusting groups, disgusting people sending her disgusting things. That's all I'm going to say about that. Absolutely disgusting. Um, and obviously, she was, the mother was shocked. Um, the girls on the server also bragged about different mental illnesses. They talked about which drugs do what. They talked about how they're really boys and not girls. They talked about top surgery, other things. Not going to go into all the details in case you have kids in the car. So uh, her TikTok feed was also filled with a bunch of transitioners talking about how great it is to transition. So much more stuff. So the mom says, I went nuclear. She did what she needed to do and it had the impact she needed. She took the phone. She deleted all social media off of it. She even blocked the girl's ability to get on the internet. She deleted all of her contacts, changed her phone number. She sat next to her while she was attending Zoom school because I think this might have been during COVID. She deleted YouTube from all of the TVs. She took every single anime book, all of her costumes, and she banned any friend that she didn't approve of that was a little bit unsavory. Based. <laughs> she also involved the police about um, the porn, which is also a, a pornography a, that had been sent to this girl. This girl, yeah, which we won't go into details. She uh, and of course, this relationship with her mom and her daughter was very, very uh, strenuous, and was yeah. it was not good. The girl hated her mom, just like an addict of a drug hates the person preventing her from getting a drug. Oh my goodness! She, but the mom held her ground despite of the constant verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. And after going through many health professionals, she found someone who's out of state to help with with this that Mm -hmm. actually agreed with her that this gender identity, quote unquote, wasn't the actual problem. The problem was insecurity with her own body. Right. So after a year and a half of going through this absolute hardship of being at odds with her daughter, her daughter, she says, is finally returning to her authentic self, a beautiful, artsy, kind, and loving daughter. Oh, praise God. I know. It's amazing. And... So it is just a beautiful testimony of sometimes it's really hard if you find yourself in this sort of situation as a parent. I can't imagine, you know, because you want to support your child, you want to love your child, and you don't obviously want them to commit suicide, and that's often what they will threaten. And it's hard, too, because all of these gender therapists are going to be arguing, you're wrong, you just need to love your child, you need to give in to this. But this mom was so brave and so courageous, and in the end, she won, and now her daughter is uh, doing so much better. She realizes all of this pain, I mean... Her, her mom has set out different articles talking about the bad side effects. When she drove her to school, she made her listen to podcasts on, the, on everything. So she really just overwhelmed her with information in a good way mm-hmm. and showed her how bad it was. And she took back the close relationship she had once had with her daughter by showing her how much she loved her and cared about her. That's so wonderful. I know. So that is just an amazing testimony. Um, so if you're, if you're a parent out there and you're going through something like this, know that you um, aren't alone and that there is hope yes not every story is a story of hope but there is hope out there Mm -hmm. and no one is too far from being saved from this yes and yeah it's just it's very inspiring so definitely go read it i read you some of the things in there but there's a lot more detail that i think is really important Mm -hmm. i know that we are at about 40 minutes and we're trying to keep our podcast a little bit shorter uh for our viewers i want to just end though moses with asking you what you're reading this week. We haven't done that in a while. Yeah, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first of all, thank you for sharing that story, Grace. Mm-hmm. I 
it's just so encouraging. Yeah. And I, I hope it is for those those listening and watching as well. Because as Grace said, not every story ends that way. But um but I think parents are able to turn the corner on this and I th- and I'm just so grateful for that. Okay, so I'm reading The Inheritance of Rome, Illuminating the Dark Ages, four hundred oh, to a thousand. Chris Wickham. What'd you say? I read that in school. That was a You did, book. really? Yeah. Wow. Do you okay. like it? Uh, it's very dry. That's what I felt like. And we it's very dry. <laughs> yeah, but the amount of information is amazing. Um, and it's it, as a, it's about essentially the, the states that rose up after the Roman Empire collapsed. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. I mean, the idea of decline in Western history by Arthur Herman, which is about basically all these people who have preached doom and gloom throughout history and how they all turned out to be wrong. <laughs> people like... Um, uh, uh, like Sartre uh, is one uh, that I'm reading about now. And finally, I'm rereading the Screwtape Letters, which oh, is so good. Oh, a classic. Good. That's so good. So my wife and I are reading that out loud, and just the conversations that that sparks, like it is so spiritually healthy to read mm-hmm. a book like that with your spouse or with anyone. Okay, so that's what I'm reading. Grace, what are you reading right now? Before we started the podcast, Moses and I were arguing about who's reading more right now. Moses <laughs> is only reading three books according to his Goodreads. According to my Goodreads, I'm reading 13, which isn't actually true because I am in finals week. But after finals week, I will be back to reading these books. I'm only going to list the, uh, like two, I think, okay. uh, because it will take a very long time. One of the ones that I just finished was called The Midnight Library, and it's a fiction work, and it was apparently one of the most popular fiction books of the year. It isn't a classic or anything, but sometimes I like to know what people are reading and see if it's actually any good. It actually was really good. Not as good as I was thinking, but it was definitely, I think I gave it four stars. Cool. could go into the concept. It is interesting. I think it's a good like beach read or vacation read because it doesn't take that much brain power. Okay. I'm also reading One Vote Away by Ted Cruz, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History. That's definitely interesting. I'm only a little bit of the way through that. Interesting. And I'm reading Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy as well. Mm. Those are just some of them. Actually, also one more. The Picture of Dorian Gray I'm reading. Because oh, I never read that. That was one yeah. of the books that I didn't ever read, but it is a classic. I'm about halfway through. Very interesting very very good so yeah reading a lot right now but love books that's great i i it's it's great doing this podcast with grace because we're both <laughs> such book nerds we uh, really are. as well as politics nerds so it's it's fun to be able to share that um Guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We have covered Vice President Kamala Harris. We've covered social studies standards in the state of Minnesota. Hopefully made that somewhat interesting. And uh, last of all, and probably most importantly, we covered a mom who helped her daughter come back from the brink of transgender identification. So make sure you uh, like, comment, subscribe. Give us a five-star review if you're on iTunes. If you're on YouTube, hit that bell icon so you get a notification every time we release a new video, which is every week or more. And uh, I'm Moses Bradford. This is Grace Evans. Thank you so much for listening to or watching the Family Beacon podcast where you can get the facts and stand for truth. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to or watching this episode of the Family Beacon podcast from Minnesota Family Council. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're up to date on life, family, and religious freedom. You can follow us on Instagram at MN Family Council and subscribe to us on YouTube to watch our content. Get the facts, stand for truth. Music